Wow, we lose somebody else again? We're losing people right and left. Wow, what I'm... I hope I'm not doing something. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to say. My goodness. All, none of you has enough experience to offer any suggestions here. Yeah, Karen, you don't. Anne, you don't. No. To me, the part, it's simple. I mean, I don't know how to fix anything. I'm just saying it doesn't seem hard program to get into. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, something's wrong. All of you who just arrived, I, I it looks like we're having problems, but I, Maria, or hold on. Um, oh, Maria, you're there. Good, good. Um, Kay and, and David, can you guys hear me all right? Yes. Okay, good. Um, there, we've been having a little bit of technical problems, I think. I don't know. Some people are having trouble getting in. Marilyn, can you hear me? Marilyn. Dave. Kay. Yeah. Good, we can hear you. Good to see you. Good to Hi. see you. Good to see you. It's good to see you, truly. Um, Marilyn, can you hear me? Marilyn, you, I, unmute your mute button if down at the bottom. Um, that'll that'll allow your voice to be heard. If it may, be, it's on mute right now. So if you unmute it, you can speak. So the the options at the bottom of the page are, you can unmute or mute yourself or or um, press video and make your visual image present. Marilyn, I hope I hope you can hear. Um, anyway, let's get started. I, I'm really sorry. I just I I'm so I wish I could offer some help here, but um, let's start. Um, for those of you who are newcomers, if if you can hear, I hope you're hearing me. Um, Put on your take take off the mute button. Just press it, and it'll allow you to speak, and the image button. But some of you have written me emails asking if there are ways you can listen to the audios that um, that we've already done, so you can catch up. And yes, you can. Um, I've got a site online. It's called literaturesprophecy.com. It's one word. So if you Google it, if you go online, and Google literature as prophecy, one word. dot com. It'll take you to the website, and on that website you'll find all the audios, everything that I've done at St. Francis. Right now we're doing Dostoevsky. We did um, Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral. It was about a, um, a martyrdom. It was a, it's a wonderful play about um, Catholic martyrdom. Um, and we've done a lot of works. The whole literary tradition is there, virtually and in, in substance. So you can go on that and listen to anything. You don't need a um, a code. Just go on. When you go into the um, opening page, there's an option up in the right-hand corner that will say content donations and other things. If you hit content, it'll take you to every one of the works, every one of the authors, and the works that they've done. 
and you'll see in each page for each author um, a, a left and right option. On the left is St. Francis and on the right is um, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. So you can go in and listen to what was done at St. Francis. You can go into what we've done at, here at Seton. Um, so yes, you can catch up easily. Um, and I would encourage you, I think, I think the first couple, I thought the second and third classes on the Odyssey were really good. Um, uh, anyway, you're, so of course you can, and um, we, we try to upload them regularly, so one or two or three days after a class, they should be online. There may be a little bit of a delay because of difficulties here, but we try to get them up as soon as we can, so... Next week, um, bring Virgil's The Aeneid. Remember I, I told you it's the Robert Fitzgerald edition. Um, I'm not sure that we'll start it. The, the, um, there's, a, there's a chance. If, if we do, it'll be very brief, so don't worry if you don't have it, but at least order Virgil's. We're going to start Virgil's Aeneid right after the Odyssey, so we'll have done Homer's The Iliad and The Odyssey and then Virgil's The Aeneid. And one of the uh, one of the purposes of the class is to is to recover a tradition. It's to flesh out this tradition that's so important for our faith, and that um, fewer and fewer Catholics know, sadly. Um, but when we finish Virgil, you will have the natural foundations for the Catholic Church. Truly, that's it, that important. Virgil's Aeneid has to do with the founding of Rome, and Rome will become the center of Christendom. I, I can't say enough about that. You'll learn things about Rome that will shock you, truly. You'll, you'll discover things about that city that you won't have known that will so deepen your appreciation of what's behind our faith. So, um, Virgil didn't know Christ. Um, he was, St. Augustine thought he was next to Christ. Um, here, before we start, before what are you doing here? Come here. Can you just... You know this You know this person here. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Good to see you. Good to see you. Hi, Karen. Take a look Hi. at that. I can't... You can't... It's funny because you can't see my hand. Take a look at that picture of Karen and um, Bob because usually all you see is Bob's right ear and Karen's left ear, but there they <laughs> there are. There they are. <laughs> 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 okay, let's, so, um, I think that's it in terms of business, um, um, let's see, um, so we'll plan to finish the Odyssey next week. We may start Virgil, I'm not sure, but, um, for sure we will, um, we will finish the Odyssey. So, those of you who are newcomers, um, know that you can go online to literaturesprophecy.com and um, also know that on when you get to the content page, when you, you'll get taken to a home page and then you've got some options at the top right and if you hit on content it'll take you into the authors that we've done in the works. At the bottom of that content page are two other options, um, St. Francis and Elizabeth Ann Seton. You can click on either one of those and get the printed materials, the hard copies of anything we've done. I, I, I think I'm going to make arrangements with Mike, the young man who's been helping me, to get a password 
um, for those of you in the class so that the printed materials, the hard copies, are not available to everybody because, um, for instance, when we do um, um, Virgil's The Aeneid or Boethius, and particularly the Divine Comedy, the Divine Comedy is it's the center. It's the central work of Christendom. It's the most Catholic work that's ever been done in creation. It's the whole of our church in a story. I I I, I can't say enough about it. You, it's going to take it's going to take a long time to get through the Divine Comedy because we're not going to go through it fast. It's an epic. It's like the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Aeneid. It's an epic work. It's long. We're going to go into Hell, Purgatory, and Perdiso. And there's so much to learn there about our faith. Um, and the study guide that I've written is long. I think most of the study guides that I've done are pretty thorough. Um, they're copyrighted. So I, I think I'm. Uh, before we get there, I'm going to um, ask Mike to help me set up a password. But, um, but until then, you have access to all the printed materials. So you're welcome to go in and print off anything you want. Okay. I think that's it. Let's start. If any of you notice that somebody's coming into the lobby and waiting and I'm missing a check, let them, let them in. Um, sometimes you know I get too preoccupied in what I'm doing, so. Um, okay. Um, let's, and those of you who are new, um, my practice is to begin each class with a prayer and then a, a short lyric poem. And my reason for the poem, who's that? Who came on just there? Who, who's LP? Who, who just came on and then disappeared? Who's that? Um, I don't know who that was, but um, maybe wrong class. I, I don't, I'm just in the dark with this. Um, we start every class with a prayer and then we do a lyric. One of my reasons for doing the lyric is to remind everybody that all these works are musical, that they come from a musical center. All the epics were written in a, in a metrical line. So there's a musical form that underlies them. There's a musical center. It, there's a harmony, a wholeness, a beauty, a, um, an integrity and a harmony. And most people don't, you know, people get in their heads and they don't hear that music, sadly. And that's a loss because intuitively what that center means is that the poet is working from a creative intuition that has its center in God. And there's nothing going on in God's order in heaven that isn't poetry, that isn't musical, that isn't in harmony. So every great lyric poem is an expression indirectly or directly even in some ways of music. There's a harmony, an order to all of it, a purpose. So in the lyric poems, I'm trying to hold on to that musical center. Every one of the lyric poems has to do with Christ in some way, or God, but generally Christ. Some of them directly. It's, it's my way, too, of trying to help us be awake to the presence of Christ in our world. I'm, um, I'm next week, next week I'm going to Next week I'm gonna. Um, next week I'm gonna do a poem that I've already done for the class. Some of you have already heard it a couple of times, so be patient with me if you have. It's called Supernatural Love. It's by an older woman looking back on her on an experience she had as a four-year-old child, and I won't say any more than that. But 
It's one of the most beautiful poems that I know of, and it has to do with the nothing experience. This little girl pricks her finger, but what that poet does with that moment is extraordinary. It shows Christ is immediately involved in what happens to that girl in that moment. Um, so the lyric poems are an effort to help open our eyes, open our ears, to see and hear Christ, in, not in church. You know, I take that for granted. We go to church and we see him everywhere, but so often when we leave that ecclesial world, the church world, we're in a business world, we're back at work, money, exchange, and we lose him. So all the lyric poems are efforts on my part to try to keep us close to Christ in the world. Okay. Um, somebody just came in and I can't... Anyway, let's, so let's start. Um, let's start with a poem. I mean, sorry, with a prayer. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What to say? God, we're alive and here. Um, a great gift. So often we complain about things we don't like in our world. Our first response should be gratitude. We're alive long before we ever have to deal with difficulties in our world. There's a lot of them today. The violence in our country, it's so widespread. The plague, the scourge that we're all under. People are dying, people are sick. People are being forced away from work to go to home, which in some ways I think is a blessing. It's teaching us to stop taking our world for granted. A lot going on in our world, but we're here Strengthen us in our efforts to be grateful before we ever complain so that um, we bring something better to whatever we do with our world. I ask a special blessing on the work that we're doing. Um, help us to stay open to these people for what they have, these poets, for what they have to offer. The ancient poets had intimations of you. They had a glimpse of you that lots of modern people don't have. Um, they're so close to seeing you even before you came so help us to open our eyes to see what what they caught a glimpse of that so often we're blind to in our world even after you've come so um, and strengthen our spirit of being open receptive and more importantly um, help us to commit ourselves to living the things that we learn to take them to our world, have the courage to pro, um, to proclaim you, to profess you, um, to bring you very often um, where people don't want you. Give us the strength to do that. Um, I ask a blessing on everybody involved in the class, um, particularly for their loved ones. Keep everybody safe from this virus. Um, we offer these prayers. In your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, the poem for tonight. I, I told you we would do Hopkins um, one more week. It's the same two poems we read last week. Um, I, I, I'd have no scruples about, none about rereading them again because I really believe that um, so often we learn by hearing again, by repetition, that, that very often when we you know, when we hear things, we don't get them, and hearing them again and again helps us. Um, I'm trusting that all of you know that when you've got, gone back to poems that you think you've read, 
and reread them again that you you learn more each time you go back so who's LP we I just I saw you and then you disappeared can you identify yourselves please um, whoever you are LP LNP and I'm not sure no I'm gonna mute you all sorry go ahead who's that no that this is Paul in the uh, participants it's showing this literature is prophecy I know they're there who's who is that who the couple that just showed up who are, Michelle and Bill Michelle and Bill Welcome. Okay. Welcome, Bill. Challenge. Do you know? I know Michelle and her husband's name is Bill. Yeah, good good, good to have you. Um it looks like your your names here on the list are literature's prophecy instead of <laughs> um Bill and Michelle. Yeah. But anyway, good to have you. Glad glad you're here. Um so um we've got to do something to get your name. <laughs> you you should be teaching the class then. <laughs> anyway, it's good it's good to have you. Genuinely good to have you. Um, do you are you aware? Are you? I mean, I you're newcomers, yeah. No, Michelle. Michelle. Yes. Well, Michelle, but Bill, Bill you're. Are, Bill, are you? I'm new. Okay. But Michelle can fill you in on everything. I mean, she can tell you about um, the, 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 okay, okay. And you know that the, the class audios are available online, Literature's Prophecy, so you can go on and listen to what we've done to catch up. Yes, okay, here are, the two, here are the two poems for tonight. Remember, one of them belongs to that dark period in Hopkins' life. Um, um, he was a Jesuit priest. God, I had to, sorry. Um, I had it marked, but... He was a Jesuit p priest, um, and he went through a, 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 a pretty serious dark period in his life and wrote a couple of some of the best poems that he's written. Um, the one we read a couple of weeks ago was called... Um, carrying comfort and remember um, it's God boy the irony of the title carrying comfort vultures um, take their life from carrying right vultures will fly down and and feed on a carcass on the on the highway so they get comfort from it that's a grotesque image it's purposely grotesque what Hopkins is saying is that sometimes we are so overcome with despair that we give into it and feed on it. It comforts us to feed on our despair. He knows that. He's a priest. He's a priest. So he knows. He knows everything we know, and just as Christ does. But because of his love of Christ, he can take us more deeply into those things, a state like despair, and help us out of them. So his response in that in that poem was no no I'll not not I'll not carry in comfort despair not feast on thee and you know we went through it so 
but it's a wonderful poem dealing, being very truthful and struggling to come out. And it really needs to be said, um, how important is the poem in coming out of it? And I'm saying that really seriously. This just isn't a poem. You know, if any of you, I'm sure all of you have moments of despair, and all of us have, um, all of us do, that very often when we make an effort to write something down, it distances us from that act. We're both in it, like Christ, and outside of it, like God. That's what Christ did as the Word. He took on our nature, suffered it, but something of Him was divine. So he was both in it and outside of it simultaneously, as only a God and a human could. And very often the poets are, are um, reenacting that kind of experience in what they're doing. So in Hopkins' two poems, the, you know, the care and comfort and the one I'll read tonight, that's what he's doing. He's going into this suffering, this anguish. But in the writing of the poem, it allows him to detach himself, to put some distance between... Um, the pain, the suffering that he experiences, and his grappling with it. So the second poem, and, and remember, I, I've told you that um, everybody can go online to the Liturgy Prophecy thing. In the content page, you can go to the bottom of the page to Seton, and there all of the all of Hopkins' poems are available. So you can go in and make printed copies of the ones that we read if, because sometimes having the printed copy help. You know that I'm always glad just to hear it because I, we should hear poems. It's, it's really important for us to hear them. So this, this is one of his two great um, dark poems. Poems dealing with spiritual, genuine, sp deep spiritual anguish. Okay. No worse there is none. Sorry. Hopkins, no worst there is none. No worst there is none. Pitch past pitch of grief, more pangs will, schooled at four pangs, wilder ring. Comforter, where, where is your comforting? Mary, mother of us, where is your relief? My cries heave, herds long, huddle in a main, a chief woe, world's sorrow. On an age-old anvil, wince and sing, then lull, then leave off. Fury had shrieked, no lingering, let me be fell, force I must be brief. Oh, the mine, mine has mountains, cliffs of fall, frightful sheer, no man fathom. I stopped last time in this line, and I want to do it again. Um, you remember I, I, I said this before, that... Um, it's by our mind that we're angelic. There's a almost infinite quality of spirit that we can know so much in our minds. We can take in the forms of Aristotle. The mind knows the forms of all things. We can take everything into us in creation and make them one with our own existence. That's how extraordinary the mind is. We can know the forms of things. In our minds, we're like angels. It's an in, it's an incarnated. It's a bodiless sort of power. In our appetites, we're like animals, we're beasts. So our mind associates, allows us to identify with the angels, our bodies with the animals. This is Plato, this is C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's through our middle element, the heart, that we're most human. 
but it's it's the mind working with our appetites and the heart that make us human. But this image of the mind, I think, is important to hold on to because in Hopkins, he's making us aware. It's through the mind that we have this sense of sheer cliffs and mountains of spaces, vast spaces. And anybody who's gone there knows how painful they can be. You know that sometimes when, here, I mean, take, take a silly example. Cut your finger. You put a Band-Aid on it, right? Feel a betrayal by somebody you love. Is a band-aid going to do there? You know, the sense of betrayal by those that we love or, you know, intimate hurts. The anguish that occurs then puts us on those cliffs, hanging by our fingers. Because the, the torture of that is so great. And that's what Christ took on on the cross, all of our, e even Peter's betrayal, you know. I mean, that's how extraordinary Christ was. So for him to use that image is really important to know that when, when, when the mind grasps things and associates them with spiritual dangers, um, it involves a pain that's not small, okay? So hold on to that. So in this, in the, remember the, the first eight lines is the octave and the second is the sestet, the six lines. So the sestet begins, oh, the mind, mind has mountains. <coughs> Cliffs of fall, frightful, sheer, no man fathom. Hold him cheap, may who ne'er hung there, nor does long. Sorry. Anne, are you back? Anne, are you back? Are you okay? Yes, I okay. was temporarily kicked out. <laughs> Honestly. Don't take that personally. I didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> I don't want. I don't want to lose you. I don't want to lose you. Um, so the the sestet begins after he, you know, he, he says, "There's no pain greater, pitch past pitch of grief, more pangs, worse pangs will come." He knows it. Woe, world, sorrow, and an age-old anvil. God is working on him like an angle, an, an, an anvil, the pounding, the torture. Age-old anvil wince and sing because there's a harmony. God's bringing some good out of our pains, even, even when we're most violated. Then lulled and leave off, fury had shrieked. Fury, the anger is so great. No lingering, let me be fell. Force, I must be brief. Oh, the mine, mine has mountains, cliffs of fall, frightful sheer. No man fathom, hold them cheap. May, who ne'er hung there. Those people who've never hung there, what do they know about it? Um, nor does long our small durance deal with that steep or deep. We can't deal with it too long, it's too painful. Here, creep, wretch, under a comfort serves in a whirlwind. All life, death does end, and each day dies with sleep. Thank God there's rest at the end of the day. So that's no worse, there is none. The other poem is um, an affirmative. That's one of his dark poems. This is one of his more affirmative ones. It's called God's Grandeur. It's an affirmation of the way God is always there, no matter the stupid things we do. Called God Grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness 
like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Why don't we reckon the rod he uses on us to see that he allows this suffering for our own good? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. All is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The toil is the soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. Because we wear shoes, we don't even feel what we do to the earth anymore. We just trot it again and again and again. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, O oh morning, at the brown brink eastward, springs. Because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with awe bright wings. We can trod and trod and trod. The Holy Ghost will keep coming back, be there. So, okay. Okay, to the Odyssey. Um, if you guys got my outline, you should have a some sense of um, what we're doing tonight. I want to. I want to um, pass over as quickly as I can just some of the larger themes that we've dealt with, and then try to get to the book as as directly because um, we still have the adventures to finish up. We got through half of the adventures, but we've got half of them to go to. The theme of the one of the great themes of the Odyssey is justice, and I've mentioned this before that um, one of the remarkable things that we get from Homer is what we got from Plato and the Old Testament. That the great concern of the ancient world, the great gift that it gave Christianity, was this sense of justice. And justice didn't mean the law, the written law, or the Jewish law. It, it had to do more with that law that's written in man's hearts, made by God, and that made it possible for man to be one with the cosmic law, this the order of God's universe. And so the last few weeks I've, I've read some passages from the Psalms and from wisdom in which God talks about his order and creation and what he does. And more importantly, the, the, the refrain of following his laws, loving his statutes, loving his commandments. The Psalms two weeks ago said the, the refrain uh, was, I love your commandments, I love your commandments, your statutes. That the, the wise man of the ancient world loved giving obedience to God. Um, it made him a better, it brought him in tune with the world. So instead of bringing it, being at odds with the world, he was at one with it. It didn't mean he wouldn't suffer, but in his suffering he was at peace because he knew he was one with God. So the principal, in one sense, the principal theme of the Odyssey is this justice, this order. Odysseus is learning to order his soul, and I've described it in terms of virtues, the virtues of the mean, justice, moderation, temperance, and... Uh, Prudence, those are the four natural virtues. He's learning to um, turn those into habits, powers in his own soul, so that he can bring something better to his family. So he's not lost at sea. <laughs> um, um, and in doing that, um, he becomes more one with the divine order. So in one sense, this is very much like what happened with Achilles. Remember, 
Achilles was living by the same honor code um, by which all men live. There was something flawed in it, it was wrong. Um, men identified honor with the booty that they got. So if they did heroic things, they'd get more booty. They'd get the most beautiful woman. But Achilles reached a point where he saw that there was a flaw in that because if honor is something can conferred, it can be taken away. And he steps out of that world, remember, and in the ninth book when Agamemnon sends men to him to bribe him back into the world, he says, his words were, such honor is a thing I need not. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. And it's at that moment, I, I, we don't know how aware he is, but clearly he's breaking from that flawed sense of honor. What I'm calling the pathos, the, the poetry of pathos, of the masculine ego. He steps out of that. He knows that there's something um, inherently good in man. That there's this inherent dignity. It can't be given or taken away. It's, it's, it's in his nature. God gave it to him. Odysseus is in, in some ways showing us the same thing, that he's, he's learning to see that there are these powers for doing good um, and he can't develop those powers without the help of the gods. So Athena is constantly with him. Um, he's learning to deal with these things at sea and in every one of them we've seen wherever he goes he brings pain because the virtue that he represents in man makes other people aware of some fault. It can be the Lestrigonese queen, the lotus eaters, um, um, Aeolus, Circe, Calypso, it doesn't matter. Wherever he goes he brings pain because people don't see virtue. They don't, they're out of tune with, they're out of tune with what the Greeks would have called the, the telos, the entelechy, the, the natural end of man. Man has within him a power for, for a natural, for perfecting a natural goodness. I want to repeat that because that was central to the last two weeks of what we were talking about. The modern world has lost any sense of that. Sciences can't get, it, get us to it. The Protestant world cannot get us to it. All the major Protestant theologians believe that man was completely corrupted. The, fall was, the consequences of the fall were complete. Man's depraved. Luther, Calvin, all the major theologians said man had no free will. It was only by God's grace that he was saved. So they did away with the natural virtues. The pagans believe otherwise, and the, and the early church, the, the Catholic churches always believe otherwise. Man was not made depraved. That's a fundamental fact of the Catholic faith. He was not ruined. He, 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 he didn't become depraved. The ruin wasn't complete. The Catholic church believes that man was wounded. He still holds on to his essential goodness. Is that goodness enough to get him to heaven? Absolutely not, because heaven is a supernatural condition. But it's good. There's this inherent good. Now, if, if that's not clear, let me just illustrate. We see a natural perfection in a rose. We see a natural perfection in a, in a good grape vineyard. We see a natural perfection in a dog when he's trained properly. There, everything around us shows that everything in creation can attain a natural perfection. Supernatural perfection? No. No. But a natural perfection? Yes. 
a man can become just, he can become temperate, he can become, he can grow in powers of endurance. It's one of the most important powers for St. Paul. And he can grow in prudence. Odysseus exemplifies every one of those natural virtues. Temperance, endurance, prudence, justice. And because he brings them wherever he goes, um, it causes pain to those around him. Because every, everybody is lacking in some way, and they can't see that. They're blind in some way. I think I've given you this example, so let me, let me repeat it. Have, have, I, I'm not sure. Have I, have I talked about the... You know, this is all Aristotle, and Aristotle got it from Homer. The source of this is Homer. In the Nicomachean Ethics, at some point, Aristotle's talking about the natural virtues, the intellectual and the moral virtues. And he says that virtue is always a mean between two extremes. You can take it, you can take courtesy, you can take money, overspending, niggardliness, you can take lots of whatever they are. Um, but virtue is a mean. It, it's a moving away from those extremes. And let me take the virtue of courage just to illustrate this, to make this clear. What are the two extremes of virtue? Have I gone through this? Do you guys recall this? Have I done? Yeah. What's the two extremes of virtue? I mean, of courage. Do you remember? And what are they? You look well, like you one know. Was, one was cowardice. Good. And the other one was uh, where you are brave to the point of being foolish. Right. Where you're risking right. necessarily. It's called rashness. Rashness. Um, okay, um, to the rash man, what does courage look like? Is that clear? To the rash man, virtue, the courage, the virtue of courage is going to look like cowardice. He's going to go into things head first and stupidly, and he's going to think that the guy who doesn't follow him is cowardly. Right? He will, he will not recognize virtue. To the cowardly man, what does courage look like? Rashness. Right? Uh -huh. He thinks the guy is overdoing it. Is everybody following? It's only the virtuous man who knows real virtue. In some ways, the people on either side of it won't see it. So the struggle for us is learning to order our emotions to become virtuous, to become good. And Odysseus is learning that on his, jo on his voyages. But what we also learn is that the, the people who, um, whom he visits don't recognize him, what they're dealing with. And, and the effect of his stay with them, his experiences with them, is always distasteful bad. Um, so we can, we can look at the, at the voyages from the time that he leaves Troy to getting home. I'm going to call it, um, in the notes that I gave you guys, it should be on the note. It's a perfection of the soul. I want to stress this. The whole action involving Odysseus is a perfection of the soul in the line of justice. Not love, that comes with Christ. 
It's a perfection of the soul in the line of justice. It's somebody learning to be more and more just. So, in one sense, what we're what we're seeing is that Odysseus is learning to be a, a better person, a more virtuous person, so that he can, he and Penelope can have something together that Nestor and his wife didn't have, and Menelaus and Helen didn't have. So Homer's showing us there is this this perfection between a man and a woman in the natural order, not the supernatural. Is that clear? I can't stress that in, a, in the natural order. <clears throat> There's this justice. Now the reason that's so important for me in, in this class is that we know from sciences, the sciences can't get to that. There's no way they can in a marriage. There's none. If you look at Freud and what Freud has done for marriages, it's horrible. I mean, Freud says that what, what drives us are these poly, polymorphous, perverse instincts, these Oedipal and Electra complexes that, you know, it's just a dark view of the human nature. And the Protestant world says we're depraved. There is no goodness in the natural order. In the pre-Christian world, what the poets are showing us is that there is this extraordinary beauty this great dignity, this goodness that man's capable of. Is it Christ-like? No. But it's moving there. It's in that direction. It, it everywhere intuits Christ. We saw that in Achilles and we saw the parousia, the, you know, the return of the king. We're going to see it now. In fact, that's one of the great themes of the homecoming. One, one way of looking at the homecoming is the return of the king. Because when he comes back, He's going to bring judgment and havoc to everybody there. All the disorders of the suitors are going to be answered. So once again, we've got the return of the king. It's an intimation of Christ. Karen, what's that? What were you saying? Are you saying something? Go. I want to hear. Put words to that. What are you saying? Your audio is not on, I don't think. Can you, can you unmute yourself? for Odysseus. Oh, good. Good for you. I'm glad. There are lots of people who hate Odysseus. I, I happen to love him. I happen to love him. <laughs> One of my pictures, there was a student I had at uh, Magdalen when I was at Magdalen for a while. Just a tough young woman. I just so admired her. And, and when we got spunky with each other, she would raise her fist and she'd say to Dr. Alexander, Dr. Al you want some of this? Come get it. <laughs> <laughs> just I loved her courage <laughs> okay so this theme of justice Odysseus is a man of many ways he's he's learning he's learning to deal with whatever circumstances present no matter how dangerous no matter how threatening no matter how violent he's learning to deal with all of these so that when he gets home he will have all of that to bring to his um, reunion with his family. So the homecoming, remember, it's to return home to what we've lost. It's to recover. But in this case, it's also to bring something to that homecoming that he didn't have before. Everything he's learned on his journey. We've talked about the regimes, the importance of the regimes. Remember the three the three real cities in Bini, Ithaca, Pylos, Sparta, and the all of the mythic regimes. And I suggested the last couple of weeks that it's very important to hold on to the fact that the two prototypes of all the regimes are the Cyclops and the Phaeacians. The Cyclops are brutal. The Phaeacians are ideal. 
Um, it's like they're mere reverse images of each other, and there's something wrong with both of them. And I suggested that the, the Cyclops are all around us today. We've talked about examples. And I also suggested that the um, Falcons are, that, that the clearest image of the Falcons is suburbia. It's getting away from problems and thinking we can escape them, and, and you know we can't. And we take our sins with us, even to suburbia. So, and then, and then we looked at the adventures. We did the Chimerians, the site. Oh no, we did. Uh, oh, the Caconians, the Lotus Eaters, the Cyclops, Aeolus, the Strigonese Queen, the Circe. And remember, we 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 spent a little bit more time on Cyclops or um, Circe and Calypso because they're the two most powerful women. Circe has Odysseus for a year. She, she's an image of that in woman which awakens carnal knowledge. The, the, the animal in man, the, the, the beast. And um, she's good. She, she's, I mean, she helps him out on, by telling him what to do. But she's an image of that aspect of woman that draws the animal out of man. And the danger for him is that he can get caught up and stay there. He can, he can remain a pig. Remember, it's only because Hermes helps Odysseus that he can get away from Circe. It's only by divine help that he has the strength to escape that. Um, Calypso, remember the word Calypso means conceal, to hide. The word apocalypse from the Bible means to uncover. Calypso is that in woman which wants to cover man, to shelter him, to protect, to have him for herself. So in both of those goddesses, those semi-goddesses, we see something very possessive in women. In, in woman. She wants to hold on to man. She wants to control him. Um, she wants him for herself. Um, and of the nine and a half years that he's away, he's under their control for nine years. That's how, that's how powerful they are. Um, and then we looked at some of the others. Now let me stop because I want to just, I want to turn to the the rest of the sea um, adventures but before we do any questions before we look at the rest of the adventures that's a lot there aren't you guys enjoying that I mean isn't that aren't are you not are you not as impressed I am so impressed with Homer I, I just I'm so sorry you know the modern world dead white males God there's there's such you know he, he I mean he belongs with Abraham and the prophets before I mean 800 years before Christ came, and he did this. This is the start. This is the start of the poetic tradition, and it's extraordinary what he gave us. It's just extraordinary. I can't look at this stuff without thinking. The whole world is there. It's waiting for Christ. It's all, you know, it's there. Um, but anyway, are you guys enjoying him? I hope so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was glad for your rooting, Karen. I love. Yes, yes, yes. I'd like to get that on picture and put it on a wall. Okay, no, any questions, you guys? None. Must not be doing something right here. What's? What am I not doing right? Come on, you guys. <laughs> oh God. I hope we get back in a classroom. What else can I say? What else can I say? Um, okay. I want to look at the land of the dead, the sirens, skill in Charybdis, and Thrinachia. Um, I want to wait on the land of the dead. So let's look at the sirens. If you go to one, 165, I think. Let's, I want to come back to the land of the dead because it's one of the most important. Um, 
Um, hold on. Sirens. Maybe 185. Hold on. Yeah. Um, on page 189 and 190 remember that Circe had this is really good and I, I want to underscore this I'm I'm so sorry Marilyn's not here in Melody um, God I would I so appreciated Marilyn's comments last I'm sorry she's not here um, remember that um, that um, one of the major figures in the literary tradition is the prostitute. Um, almost most male writers are taken with the prostitute figure and in some ways I think it's because proper women very often conceal, hide a nastiness. The prostitute's laid bare. People have nothing good to say about her. And yet we find again and again that there's something dear in her heart towards men, even if she uses men. But she's a paradoxical figure. Dostoevsky treats her in Crime and Punishment. Um, it's the prostitute who saves Raskolnikov. Um, Shakespeare deals with some. Faulkner deals with in, in Faulkner's last novel, The Reavers, which is a fun, wonderful. It's just a. If you've not seen the Steve McQueen um, um, film, The Reavers, you should see it. It's a wonderful family movie. Well, maybe you better maybe you better view it first, because it's about a boy's sort of stepping into maturity when Boone Hagenbeck um, steals the the grandfather's car and goes to Memphis to a whorehouse to see the the, the woman he <laughs> he wants to have sex with. Um, but sh the the woman, the prostitute, there is the saving figure of the work, um, and it's not uncommon in Faulkner's The Town. One of the major figures is Reba, who's a prostitute. And I'm assuming you all know, you all know who it was that led the Israelites into the Promised Land. You all know that, right? It was um, Reba. Wasn't that her name? The prostitute? Um, Rahab. What was it? Rahab. Re Rehab, right. Thanks. Sure. Thanks, Karen. Yeah, thank you. Um, so Circe has that paradoxical quality. She's the goddess who wants to bed Odysseus and turn him into a pig with all the men. It's only because of Hermes' help that Odysseus can stay, save that. But she's the one who tells him what to do to save himself. So it's as if she knows those dangers enough to warn him. So he warns him off, she warns him off, and he comes to the Phaeaki, or the, the uh, Sirens on page 190. As he approaches the the sirens island he he Cersei told him be sure you don't listen because if you do you'll die so whatever it is they present to him presents a real threat to men so um, he he tells all the men to plug their ears put wax in their ears and he gets tied to the mask so he can't do anything so he allows himself to experience the sirens when his men can't this is what we got in 190. 
But when we are as afar off from the land as a voice shouting carries lightly plying, the swift ship as it drew near was seen by the sirens, and they directed their sweet song towards us. Come this way, honored Odysseus, great glory of the Achaeans, and stay your ship so you can listen here to our singing. For no one else has ever sailed past this place in his black ship until he has listened to the honey-sweet voice that issues from our lips. Then, then goes on, well pleased, knowing more than ever he did, for we know everything that the Argives and Trojans did and suffered in wide Troy um, through the gods' despite. Over all the generous earth, we know everything that happens. Now, as he passes by, he sees um, the skeletons of men, skulls and bones. So they're the leftovers of men who have cracked on the shores listening to the sirens. So what are the sirens? Where does he find the sirens at home, and where do we find the sirens today? What are the sirens? Remember, what Odysseus is learning to deal with is a metaphysical order. It's an ontological order. It's Homer is giving us, this is what's extraordinary. God, it's just the modern world. God. Um, he's giving us visible images of invisible powers. He's helping us to see things that ordinarily are out of the range of our sight, what we can't see, they're hidden. So every one of these, these peoples that he meets, the regimes, show us archetypes. They're the roots, the sources, these potencies, these dangers um, that he has to learn to deal with. So who are the sirens? Where do we find them at home? And where do we find them around them today? Once men hear these voices, they, by the way, just as a, as a point of interest, when we do Dante, Dante is going to be halfway up, halfway up purgatory. So he's out of hell. He's escaped hell. This is really interesting. This is not in hell. He's halfway up purgatory. He's on his way to heaven. Halfway up, he's sleeping on because he has to take a rest on halfway up. He sleeps overnight. And he dreams of the siren, and he can't escape her. Virgil tries to wake Dante. This is so good. This is so good. Dante, Virgil tries to wake Dante. And reason, reason is not sufficient to deal with his power. It's only because Lucia, who's a holy figure, Lucia, the light from heaven, it's a transcendent light, she comes to Virgil and offers help, scolds him. So it's only once again with divine help that man can escape this power. It's that great. So what 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 is the siren? What where is she? I'm gonna go get some wine. <laughs> Sirens temptations, right? Yeah, who is that? Is that Bill? This is Bill. Is that Bill? Yes, sir. Flesh that out, can you? I flesh that out, please. Well, the sirens are the visible temptations of all kinds of flesh sins. Uh, alcohol, lust, envy, what have you. Whatever it might be. It's the visible sign of 
what we cave into uh, um, in our today. Okay, except here it takes a particularly feminine form. Most most of the temptations that he's dealing with here are feminine. I know you may be at, you may be in trouble with uh, <laughs> where you are right now, but um, it has to do with I mean the way it's presented it, with something feminine. I mean lust. I mean lust. It certainly. I mean, it seems to me lust is one of the things that Odysseus got to learn to deal with here, and it's something he had to learn to deal with with Circe for sure, and in some way with. Um, seems to me lust comes into play directly with Circe, that with Calypso, Odysseus is is learning to deal with a tendency to idealize the beauty of a woman, because Calypso is an image of something divine. So there's a danger in man in idealizing the beauty of a woman, too idealizing. And we all know that. All of us know when we get married, women tend to idealize men, men tend to idealize women, that the danger for a man and the beauty of a woman is he can idealize it. And we all know that six months later, <laughs> when he wakes up in bed and, you know, I mean, all these things that we all know, it's just... But the sirens, I mean, she, the sirens are different from either Circe or Calypso, so, but she's feminine. Um, Karen, I'm, what do you make of that? I'm sorry. Well, you, my in, mind went straight to, you know, movies and Hollywood. Those sexualized actors actresses, actresses actually, and singers that um, like our um, halftime show on the, oh, yeah. the, yeah. Super Bowl. the Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's really good. I, I hadn't gone there, but I think that's so right on. I, I, just to back that up, I, I wasn't going there, but I, but I, but I couldn't agree with you more. It's an idealized figure then some, you know. Um, I remember when I was a little kid and saw, I think it was, I can't remember who the actress was. I think it may have been Doris Day and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. I, I can't remember the mo movie. But I still I still remember that experience. Because beauty's been a, I mean, it's, beauty's been a real temptation for me all my life. I mean, art, beauty, when I was a, teaching at, at my first college, the art, the guy who was the head of the art um, department and I were just dear, dear friends. Um, we both loved beauty, you know. And at the end of his life, it's as he and both of, he and his wife were artists. They went to the end of the life, and they had they they took on dil diligently what they called a censorship of the eyes, both of them, because they spent their lives as artists, because they knew the danger of as artists of dealing with beauty. I think your example is a really good one. When I was a kid, I, I remember. I could not believe the effect she had from the way she sang her songs. It just enhanced her beauty tremendously. And I watched her age as I grew up, and I, I'm not sure who the actress was. It, um, it may have been somebody else. But she, she just, um, what's the word? She became jaded. I mean, you watched a woman just become selfish and jaded and... and um, there's such a tendency to, to aesthetically to, to come under the power of particularly the beauty in a movie or other things like that. So I, I think you're right on. 
Sometimes I think um, the the barmaids at bars, you know, when they will go honey and they they will play to men, and there's a temptation for men to become entranced by that because because lots of them are attractive women, that it increases their beauty. But it's interesting here that they're related to singing songs. Um, it's it it it. I, I'm going to suggest that there's some way in which that beauty communicates. Um, what what we take or anybody in the presence takes as love that it's the motion of beauty um, imag imagine being in God's presence Christ is supposed to be the image of the Father right in me you see the Father the, the church father described him as the image of the Father and in that sense he, he exemplified beauty the word beauty so he imparted that to creation and everything he made. That, um, that so often when they're in the presence of something extremely beautiful, we feel a music, and harmony, something like an expression of love. Except in the sirens, it's, illus it's um, illusory. It's not real. Um, it's the danger of, of that power. Um, so... Um, Skill and Charybdis. Let's just briefly take tackle that. Um, Odysseus once again, Circe told him that he had to skirt the two of them, two of the women. Um, Scylla would um, take some of his men if he happened to go by at a time when um, Charybdis was flooding, washing, sinking. The whole ship would go down. So what? Is a, what is Odysseus learning in passing through that pass between those two feminine figures? Anne, did you have something? Well, I, I don't really think this answers the question, but what really struck me is how he's he has these two difficulties, and he's right. having to deal not just with one problem, but maneuver through two of them. Right, right. And it's really off, but I just wanted to say that the uh, the image of his men reaching out to him as they are about to be destroyed was just so powerful. Well, wow. beautifully written. Well, wow. well, wow. well, wow. good for you. Remember I've talked about the Odyssey as an the first great anti-romantic book? I think the tendency in most human beings is to face their choices with a black-white, with black-white options. And usually one of them is all good. So we choose, we choose one because we don't want the pain of the other. Right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to suffer. So we tend to, we tend to, I'm, I, this goes back to the sirens and so much of what we've been talking about. We tend to idealize one of the options, exaggerate its importance for us because we don't want to suffer. What Odysseus is, 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 is Homer, God bless Homer. I'm just talking about him, gets me worked up again. God, you just love him. Homer is not romantic. He, 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 he knows better. Remember, long suffering Odysseus. What he's showing us in the skill in Charybdis is the lesser of two evils. We want to go through life making options that allow us to avoid suffering. Homer's showing us there's nothing we can do in life that doesn't involve suffering. 
The real question we face most of the time is, and by the way, here's where prudence comes in. Remember, because I said one of the virtues is prudence. It's knowing what to do, how to do at the right time. And it, it may mean in suffering some. Remember, courage, courage is one of the great paradoxical virtues because courage means putting your life at risk in order to save it. Right? So courage means you have to go into something knowing you might die. Because most of us want to escape it. The, the natural thing is flee. And very often when we do that, we die. Courage means going into something, risking suffering in order to get better. So in Skill and Charybdis, we're watching Odysseus deal with the lesser of two evils. I can give you a good example. I hope this doesn't politicize this discussion, but um, I, I could never in my life vote for Hillary Clinton for, I hope, reasons that are obvious. I had to vote for Trump, even though I don't like him personally. And, and, I, and by the way, I support Trump's policies. They're, they're generally conservative. I tend, I, I'm a pretty conservative guy. But that was one of the greatest lesser of two evils that I've ever faced in my life. There's, there's no way I could not vote because that would have turned my vote in, into somebody, you know. Um, and there's no way I could have voted for her for all of her programs. Um, I did not like Trump. I, I um, still don't like him in lots of ways. But I support a lot of his programs. But that situation is, is one of the clearest examples of having to choose the lesser of two evils and then living with the consequences afterwards. Because we all know we all have circumstances like that where we have to make a decision. Sometimes we will bear the consequences of that for years. I mean, it's... Right, let me stop here. So we've looked at the sirens and skill and Charybdis. Um, before we go on, I want to look at, um, at Thernakia, where, where everything, where all the men die. But before we do, can you, it, either of you, locate the sirens or skill and charybdis in Ithaca at home because I've been asking you to think about where they are today but you know that all of all of these don't just apply to our own lives they more directly apply to what Odysseus is going to face at home when he comes home and deals with the suitors and Penelope so can you think of any ways in which any of the things that we've been dealing with, particularly the sirens and skill and Charybdis, but you can be Calypso or Circe or Lestrigone's queen. Can you relate those to what Odysseus has to deal with at home in any way? You guys see the connection, right? Either these things are helping him prepare to do something. So they're there, and, the, and either that or they're all just adventures and they're meaningless. If it's the first case that they're important because they help us see something at home, then we've got to learn to... So we've got to learn to take these invisible things and apply them in a world by analogy. So that takes a leap of real thinking or we're not seeing the connection or Homer hasn't done his job, that these are all just you know, random adventures and they don't have anything to do with his end or what happens when he comes home. Any thoughts about how any of these relate to what he faces at home? Homer's amazing, just amazing, just amazing, just amazing. Always being pulled between two things, um, 
having to walk a line every day. Yeah. And, you know, whether it's um, between children and teachers or um, business and different aspects of business, um, which way is going to get you uh, right. where you want to go and to have the best consequences. Can you, but can you apply it? Yeah, I agree completely. Can you apply it to what Odysseus faces at home with the suitors and Penelope? Or the maidservants even? I mean, any of, any of those figures. Let's wait. Let's go ahead. We've got, we'll get there because we're, we're, we're going to be home shortly and have to look at everything that Odysseus faces at home. Take a look at Thrunakia on, uh, let's see, I'm going to, I've got to find this. Mm, this can't be. Two, no, 195. You remember, go to 188, <clears throat> just for a second. This is really important. Homer's teaching us to see beneath surfaces. Remember Plato's cave, where we're all caught with surfaces. Homer's teaching us to go beneath, to see the deeper meaning of things, to help us deal with our world in a better way. It's interesting, when Circe's giving Odysseus advice, she says on page 188, Then you will reach the island of Thrinacia, where are pastured the cattle of the fat sheep of the sun god Helios. Seven herds of oxen, as many beautiful sheep flocks, and fifty to each herd. Now, underline this. There is no giving birth among them, nor do they ever die away, and all their shepherdesses are gods, nymphs with sweet hair, Lampicha and Phaethusa, whom shining Nera bore to Hyperion, the sun god. Okay, now you know on 193, when they come to Thrinacia, they're warned not to eat the cattle of Helios, the sun god. The, the, and it's interesting because the, the, the winds die down and they become stranded. They can't get off the island. And they start starving. And um, on page 192, um, this takes place. When I was on the black ship, still out in the open water, I heard the lowing of the cattle as they were driven home and the bleeding of sheep. And my mind was struck by the saying of the blind prophet, Teresius, the Theban, and also Circe. Both told me many times, avoid the island. Then sorrowful as I was, I spoke and told my companions, listen to what I say, Though you're suffering evils while I tell you the prophecies of Teresius and Circe. They've said, don't eat the cattle. Don't eat um, these figures. Now, they're, they're stormbound. They're caught, and they can't get off. And um, Eurylochus on 194 says, um, at the top of the page, Listen to what I say, my companions, though you're suffering evils. All deaths are detestable for wretched mortals. But hunger is the sorriest way, for, way to die and encounter fate. Come then, 
let's cut out the best they eat. He says below, go down a few lines, I would far rather gulp the waves and lose my life in them once and for all than be pinched to death on this desolate island. Now, we haven't talked about this, but one of the great images running through, if you're paying attention, you will have heard it again and again and again. Homer keeps saying that one of the great causes of affliction for men is what he calls the ravenous belly. The aching stomach, the ravenous, the torturous belly. He's got different phrases, but it's always the ravenous belly, the torturous belly. The, that the appetites, the appetites of man can overwhelm him. Here, they're faced with an ultimate test. They're told not to eat the cattle. And his um, stance in dealing with the two options he's got, whether to die by sea or die by hunger, is to die by sea. So he says, I'd rather die at sea than die starving. And they eat the cattle. Now, when they start eating, this is a really... Because we're going to hear this again when Odysseus gets home. So hold on to this passage. Um, on page 195. But when I came back again to the ship, the sea, um, and the seashore, they all stood about and blamed each other. The next thing was that, now, they've eaten the cattle. Okay, they, they were told not to. They've eaten the cattle. The next thing was that the gods began to show forth portents before us. Hold on to this image because we're going to hear it again when Odysseus gets home. The skins crawled, and the meat that was stuck on the spoils bellowed, both roast and raw, and the noise was like the lowing of cattle. Six days thereafter, my own eager companions feasted on the cattle of Helios, the sun god, cutting the best ones out when Zeus, the son of Crows, established the seventh day. Then at last the wind ceased from its story. Now, you know, they set off on the sea, and what happens? The sea is destroyed. Or, sorry, the ship is destroyed. Odysseus loses all of his men, and that's when he's washed up on Calypso's island. And that's where he will remain for eight years. So all of the adventures have taken place now. You're all following, right? Let's see if I let me see if I've got this. I put this note on your on your um, um I can't remember. Mm. Nope. Um, give me a minute. Um, you know, I showed that. I showed one of the. Um, I don't see it. Anyway, you know, it was a straight line that sort of schematically showed that the adventures. So, but that was on the one that you put in today. I don't know. It wasn't. I, I don't. Anyway, I'm not going to go there because I don't. I, right now, I don't want to lose the time. But you've all got that. If you, it's just a straight line with the, with the, stages of Odysseus' travel. So you know, he had all the adventures. He comes to Thanakia, and he loses all. So he's been losing his men right along. Now he's by himself, and he washes. He he washes up on Calypso's island. He's there, and you know, after eight years, Hermes comes to set him free. He sets off in that raft. Poseidon swamps him, he holds on to the mast, and he swims ashore to the Falcons, and that's when he tells his story of all the adventures. Okay? Now my question here is, what's going on with the cattle of Helios? Why were the men punished? Why is it so important? Where do we find it today? 
and remember the nature of the cattle, what Cersei said. What's going, what do we learn? What do we take away from that? Eating. We can't live without food. It's the most natural thing. I, 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 I want to do something with this in some writing. The two things most natural to man are air, right? We can't live without breath, without right? We can't. We can't live without food. The two things most natural are air and food. And here, the men seem convicted. They're told not to eat these cattle, and they eat. So what's wrong? How do we look at this men? What was wrong with what they did? What is there to learn about eating? And I wanted, I can't stress this important enough. Odysseus has gone on all these adventures. He's He's dealt with the Cyclops. He's dealt with the Lestrigonese queen, who was as big as a mountain. He's had the these two goddesses, um, Circe and um, Calypso, who are relatively quiet. You know, they're not violent women. The Lestrigonese queen was. Um, he's faced the sirens, Skill and Charybdis. Here he comes to this island, and he eats, and all of his men die. He doesn't. Well, sorry, he doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't. He doesn't eat. He's the only one that doesn't eat. And the men do. Eating's a natural thing. Why Why are the cons... Let me put it to The consequences seem so out of proportion to the sin. Is... Are they? It's kind of Garden of Eden-ish. Explain that, Anne. Is that Anne? Yeah. Explain yeah, that, can because you? Because... They have been told oh, very right. clearly under no circumstances. Right. Will you do this? Right. And do it. They do it anyway, and have terrible consequences. Yeah. No, I'm so glad. I, I couldn't agree. So one of the, I agree. Absolutely agree. One of the great sins here is disobedience. The mm -hmm. gods told them not to. Mm -hmm. So, so the question. I mean, I'm. You hit it. I mean, that's one. I've got. So you hit it on the nail. The question is, if you're going to die, should you die obeying the gods or disobeying them? Because it matters. Their choice, I mean, because watch, watch what he said. He said, I'd rather die um, at sea than starving. The issue was, um, would you rather die obeying the gods or disobeying? What he's, moderns do this. He's rationalizing away a really difficult situation. And we've been facing that in almost every episode. People keep using their minds to explain things away, rationalize them away, as if nothing there, but they're going to suffer for it. Everywhere he's gone, he's brought suffering. Um, he's the only one who doesn't eat. All the other men disobeyed the gods. So that's not a small thing. Um, what was his name? Eurykos. Eurylikos. Rationalized. He made it seem like it was nothing. You know, they had a choice. And what he did, interestingly, is is hold on to the most comforting thing. Let's eat. You know, because it's an immediate gratification. You're immediately saved instead of suffering some more. So he took the easier out and explained it away with his mind. And yet, what was involved with it was disobedience. So I, I, I hadn't taken I hadn't taken it back to the garden, Anne, But I think you're absolutely right. It, it is. I hadn't put it there. I, I was just thinking in terms of obedience. You know, but taking it back to the garden is a perfect place to take it. Anything else? What's wrong with eating the cattle of Helios? 
What's their nature? They're godlike. Explain it, Karen. Well, they were told not to. That's what's wrong with it. <laughs> well, the other thing is, Circe's, you remember Circe's description? She said, none of them were born. What were her words I read? They don't die. They, they, don't, they don't die. There is no birth among them. I can't, sorry. There is no birth among them. Nor do they ever die away, and their shepherd are gods. They're not gods, but they're shepherds. But they never die away. You, I don't want to get into Plato here, but if Plato believed that the natural end of man, were, the source of all knowledge, were what he called the forms. They're outside of time and space. So the forms of bed, the forms of man, the forms of cattle. St. Augustine is going to say Plato's forms were the ideas in man's, in God's mind. That the template, the source of all created things through God's mind. Is that clear? It's the seminal template. Where did all things in creation come from? There had to be an idea, a form, that produced all these essences, the same like trees, beds, cattle, humans, flowers, you know. Go back to the Genesis in creation. God made this, 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 this. St. Augustine's um, thought was that Plato's forms could be looked at as the ideas in God's mind. So the nature of these cattle, they're described, I think Plato got his idea about forms from these cattle. They're not a part of generation. They're not born. They don't come into time. They're not born. They exist. So they have an immortal nature. Now what does that mean with respect to eating? And I'm going to make a jump here. I don't want to go there, but keep it in your mind. In some ways, it's almost like the prototype of the Eucharist. So these men are fooling around with an immortal food. They've been asked not to eat it, and they're treating it lightly. And they die. I don't want to go to the Eucharist, because I, there's, you know, the link isn't, but there's something about the nature of these cattle that reminds us these are not cattle as we know cattle. These are the forms. These are like the templates. The, and so for men to eat them suggests something sacrilegious. They're, they're not... Let me, let me put it different. Here, let me put it a little bit different. One of the interesting, I, I, I mean, this is sort of puzzling to me. I'm still thinking about these things after teaching these things for 20, 25, 30 years. Cyclops eats human beings. Remember when the men go into the cave? He picks up human beings and eats them. These are men. These are not animals. He's eating human beings. There's a way in which human beings can take food for granted. And in a way that hurts because they take it for granted. If they take that food for granted, what won't they take for granted? Maybe the best way to put it. So it's interesting to me that, that the journey for all of Odysseus and his companion comes to an end here over a matter of eating. It seems like such a simple thing, and yet there's very strange, important things going on here you know, that we're asked to look at. Any other thoughts before we...
care and you got a thought you are so transparent that wonderful face of you your smile beams and when you've got a question it's right there Come on, let's ask it. Lots are way out there, so it's kind of scary. No, 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 don't. Come on, I want to hear. How much uh, of these tales, Homer's stories, the Odyssey, right, right, did they? I mean, this pre predated, um, well, even the Jewish people. How much did they know about this story? Who they? Who Jewish people? God's chosen people, the Jews. Wait, let me go back. It didn't predate the Jews because Homer's right. Well, wait, hold on. Let me try to clarify. I'm not sure that I can answer it, but Homer's Homer's telling his story about 800, 850. BC. That's the Trojan War. The Trojan War took place around 1200. I think Moses or Abraham Abraham leaves to come out for God. Around. I'm not. I can't remember now. I'm, boy, I'm really. I've got. I did this in the beginning, in the very first class we treated. We did this. Go back to my notes. You've got my notes. I can't remember them. I think Abraham's called out around 1400, and it's hundreds of years later that uh, Moses gives the tablets. So, these are already a part of the Jewish people. Now, how much interchange takes place between those the Greek or wait, wait, hold on, because I really want to. How much interchange takes place? I don't know. But it's it's hard. I mean, Homer could not have told the story about the Iliad Odyssey without an oral tradition already existing, because the tales were passed down. He got it's it's an oral tradition. There's nothing written. The amazing thing is what he did with them. So we know that these tales existed. What he did with them, or it's, we can't tell because we don't have the pre-existing things to know how he changed them or what he, what he did with them. But at the same time, we know that the writings of the prophets, um, some of the holy scriptures were already written, you know, in Jerusalem. Whether there was intercommunication going on between those cultures, I can't say. It's hard to believe that there wasn't some exchange. But my own, my own. It's hard to believe that it would have been exact, because the stories are very different. Now, here's where it gets interesting because this gets a little bit better to your question. When Virgil writes, Virgil's writing in 70 BC, Homer's writing in 800 BC, so it's 800 years later. When Virgil writes, remember Virgil's writing about Aeneas, who was a survivor of the Trojan War, and Aeneas sets out to found a home, it takes him eight years and constant failures of foundings to finally get there. And lots of people have made the argument that Virgil was helped to tell his story about Aeneas in his wanderings, the trials, because he had some experience of the Jewish re record of the wanderings in the desert, the Mosaic Law, the, the founding of the Promised Land, that some of that may have influenced him. We, we don't know that for sure. But, um, but but what we do know is there are remarkable parallels between those traditions as they're developing. Go ahead. I'm not sure that that. The reason that I went there was because I always wondered why, why, when, why did the Jewish people make a golden calf? And we were talking about these. Oh, the the golden. Wow. Yeah, the cattle of Helios. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just wondered if there was any string, tiny. Thing. I don't know. 
That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Like I said, I'm out there sometimes. No, that's really oh. interesting. I mean, the other, the interest. Well, you know, the interesting thing is they make an idol of it, but whether they were looking for some metaphysical, invisible, ontological form of calf, you know, I don't know, but um, I, I can't answer that, but that's a good connection. I mean, it's, I can't, I can't answer anything about it, but I think it's a really good connection. It's interesting that they made it an idol and um, it made God really angry um, because they, they turned it into an idol. The Jews were very iconoclastic. I mean, they, they distrusted images. You don't have a strong Jewish tradition the way we do in the Greek world. Remember, in the, um, the, 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 in the Greek world, you welcome strangers because they could be a god. We're going to see that when Odysseus gets home, you know, the, the, the rites of hospitality. Because almost nowhere he goes except with Faka do they welcome him. The, the Jews were, were very reserved about putting anything in images. So it, would, would, it would be like a, uh, what's the word, to desanctify, to blaspheme, or it's not the right word, but anyway, let's, um, let's take a one minute break. I'll come back and then we're going to look at the land of the dead. I'd hope to get home, to, you know, to, to deal with Odysseus's landing at home, but I, I think I'm going to wait. Um, but the land of the dead is one of the central um, episodes. He has to go there to get home. Why does he have to deal with the dead? Why is that so important to his coming home to deal with the suitors and Penelope? Okay, give me 60 seconds and I'll be right back. Do you want some water? That's what he's going to do. You sit still. Okay, I just had a sip of wine, so I'm on my last leg. <laughs> um, if that seems strange, remember that um, when the book begins, there um, there's um, a bard, a bard at Ithaca. Femios is the bard. Remember, he sings the songs of the Trojan War, and Penelope gets really upset. She she's saddened by it, and it's then that Telemachus tells her to let the bard sing. I, I suggested that that's one of the first signs that he's growing into manhood, that he's, he doesn't insult his mother, he's not rude, but he says let the, let the, because it's important for men to keep, to remember those deeds and to hold on to them. When he gets to Scaria, remember the, the bard there is Demodocus, he's blind. 
and um, and then Odysseus will be asked to tell his stories, and each time they do, the bard sits. He's, he tells the story to a group, and he has his wine next to him. And I, I, I suggested this figure. I really want you to hold on to these things because these things are wonderful to contemplate and enjoy, and we've lost sense of sense. Um, that, the, you remember, the, the bard, the, the sort of prophet figure, was the one who passed on a tradition. It was almost like a priest and a rite. He's the one who's carrying forward the most important things. So a community would gather around him and he would always be given wine while he sang this story. And sometimes, I mean, imagine telling the story. Imagine Homer telling the story in a community. He'd have to go on for hours and then do something because the, the Iliad is not a short poem. When Faulkner, I'm sorry, when Chaucer told his tales, in the, so this is 1400, we're just at that point where we're moving away from an oral tradition and a bard at the center of it, Chaucer's telling his stories at court, into the modern world. And if you know anything about that transition there, you know that the poet who was the center, he was the spokesman of a wisdom for a people, he's pushed off at the margins. And it's from that point on that the artist gets pushed on more and more to the margin. He becomes a voice not heard anymore, a voice in the wilderness. And he's like the ancient prophets, he's not heard. And, and we've reached the situation in the modern world where the poet is absolutely isolated and he often commits suicide. Artists, artists are often on the fringe, unheard. They're just isolated, left alone, ignored. The word that they have for us, people don't want to hear. Um, anyway, so, cheers. I think I'm taking that because we're going to the land of the dead, so. Okay, let's look at it. I want to do this very briefly because we're um, almost out of time. Because um, I want to leave everybody with why, why all these things before Odysseus goes home. Turn to um, One sixty nine. Circe gives him instructions and tells him that when he goes to the land of the dead, um, he has to first um, perform a rite. He has to make sacrifices, and um, I have the pages here. Um, 169, he enters the opening to the dead, and there will be, it, um, it's interesting that, you remember, we get some mention of the land of the dead when Patroclus dies and his ghost visits Achilles, but here we actually learn the typography. We, we see its different areas. When we get to Virgil, the land of the dead becomes more differentiated. It gets closer to Christianity and a heaven and a hell. So very gradually, in Western man, we're watching man become aware of um, of degrees or grades of goodness and evil in, in the next life. Um, page 169, towards the top. Now when with sacrifices and prayers I had so entreated the hordes of the dead, 
I took the sheep, cut their throats, um, and the souls of the perished dead gathered to the place up out of the um, Erebos, brides and young unmarried men, long-suffering elders, virgins, everybody. These came swarming around my pit from every direction with inhuman clamor. Then I encouraged my companions and told them, taking the sheep that were lined by slaughtered with the pitiless brawn, to skin these and burn them, while I myself, drawing from beside my thigh my sharp sword, crouched there and would not let the strengthless heads of the perished dead draw near to the blood until I had questioned Teresius. Remember, he's the prophet that he has to meet. Interesting thing here, the dead want blood because there's no human life without blood. It's the source of life. Take blood away and nobody can live. They all long for life. And yet, they're dead and they're still frightened by a sword. It's like they still hold on something of their human nature, even in the next life. Um, on page 170, um, He meets Elpinor, who was one of his soldiers who got left behind. He fell off the roof of Circe. Hold on to this, because Virgil's going to make a lot of this. He fell off the roof, and he didn't get buried. And he pleads to Odysseus to bury him, because until he's buried, he can't successfully make the trip from the living to the dead. And after he promises that he will, he meets Tiresias on 170 at the bottom. Son of Laertes and seed of Zeus, resourceful Odysseus, how is it then, unhappy man, you've left the sunlight and come here to look on the dead men in this place without pleasure? Draw back from the pit and hold your sharp sword away from me so that I can drink of the blood and speak the truth to you. It's interesting. It's like a resurrection moment that when he drinks it, he can offer guidance to Odysseus that he can't do until then. Um, and then he prophecies what's going to happen to Odysseus and his men. And he tells them, don't, for sure, don't eat the cattle. Um, he hears that, all the men, and he hears that. Um, and then he meets his mother on page 173 because she died from grief. She reached a point in her life when her sorrow um, from missing her son so much took her life. Um, he's going to hear that from his father, Laertes, when he goes home. Here we, we see Odysseus encountering his mother on 173. Um, middle of the page, I, visited, I was visited by sickness, which beyond other things takes the life out of the body with hateful weakness. But shining Odysseus, it was my longing for you, your cleverness and your gentle ways that took the sweet spirit of life from me. So she spoke, he ponders what to do. Three times I started towards her and my heart was urgent to hold her. Three times she fluttered out of my hand like a shadow or a dream, and the sorrow sharpened at the heart within me. Um, now, remember this. Three, remember this, because we're going to find it again in Virgin. We're going to find it in Dante. He tries to clasp his mother. She's a shade. There's no body. Um, so in hell, in the afterlife, human beings continue to hold on to the form that they had in life, but not the body. Um, um, what happens next, I'm going to pass over it because there's too much. Odysseus is going to meet all the queens of the dead. 
And the interesting thing about every one of them, and we're gonna, there's going to be a real significance, and when we put this together with his experiences at sea with all the feminine figures, it's, it presents an even darker figure of things that men have to deal with in women. Because none of these women remember their husbands. They all remember their wealth, they remember their possessions, they remember the homes, their palaces, their queens. They're, you know, they had a lot of wealth. None of them remembers their husbands. So they hold on to the things that they were possessive about, the things they wanted most, but are forgetful about their husbands. Um, on 178 and 179, he meets the ghost of... Um, wait. Of Agamemnon who tells him the story of his homecoming and the treachery of his wife because you remember when Adis or Agamemnon came home um, Clytemnestra and her lover um, killed him. Um, so on page 179 the ghost of Agamemnon says towards the bottom I spoke and he in turn said to me in answer so by this do not be too easy even with your wife nor give her an entire account of of all you are sure of. Tell her part of it, but let the rest be hidden in silence. And you, and yet you, Odysseus, will never be murdered by your wife. Now, hold on to that because um, he's a, he was he was um, betrayed. Agamemnon was betrayed. Um, Penelope won't betray Odysseus. And hold on to that comment, that warning by Agamemnon, because you have to see if he holds anything back from Penelope, or if the two of them completely share their stories once they're reunited. Okay. Um, then he meets with Achilles on 180. Um, towards the bottom, I again said to Achilles in answer, Son of Peleus, far the greatest of the kinds, Achilles, I came for the need to consult Tiresias. He might tell me some plan by which I might come back to Rock, Rock, um, Rocky Ithaca. So he can't get home without Theseus' help. It was essential. He could not get home without the help of a prophet. Um, no man before has been more blessed than you are. No, no, no man will be. Every man in the Greek world up, in time, up until this time has looked at Achilles as the ideal of a heroic man. It's absolutely crucial to see. That's what Odysseus is saying here. That he was the greatest figure. If you read the, the Iliad, he comes out of that as the this astounding figure. Once again, wait to see what Virgil does with this guy. But here, um, Odysseus is saying, you're the greatest man alive. Before when you were alive, we Argives honored you as we did the gods. And now in this place you have great authority over the dead. Do not grieve, even in death, Achilles. So I spoke, and he in turn said to me an answer. Now this is the man who was the greatest. Remember, he pulled out from the war. Agamemnon came to him in the embassy in the ninth book and offered him tons, literally tons of wealth, cities, wealth, women, to come back into the war. And he refused it all. He said, such things I need not. And then he's given all this wealth at the end when he does come back into the war. And you remember that um, he, um, he ransoms um, Hector's body that Priam brings all this wealth to him in that wagon and leaves him all the wealth, all this wealth so that he can get his son. And Achilles knows he's going to die. He goes into the battle knowing he's going to die. So 
Odysseus saying, don't grieve. You're, I mean, we looked up to you. you um, you're the greatest man alive. Do not grieve even in death, Achilles. So I spoke, and he in turn said to me in answer, O shining Odysseus, never try to console me for dying. I would rather follow the plow as thrall to another man, one with no land allotted him and not much to live on, than be a king over all the perished dead. But come now, tell me. I mean, you'll tell me. So, the greatest man alive, and remember, the choice he faced was a long, comfortable life, or a short life with honor. And he chose a short life with honor. And here he's saying, I would rather be a slave of a farmer pushing a plow around than be king of the dead. Um, that's how much, that's how valuable life is. Um, he gets warned again about the, the um, betrayals of women um, and then Odysseus um, 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 meets with some of the gods that are there. And then he and the men return. They go back to Circe. And it's from there that they leave and they go on to face Skill and Charybdis and Thrinachian. And it's the end of the ventures. Now let me just close on this because we've only got a few minutes. It seems to me two, one of the things that stands out most about the, um, the underworld is... Um, the treachery of women again. Um, all none of the women remember their husbands. Um, oh, where's this? Sorry. Um, give me one second. Sorry. Turn to page, or sorry, book 15, page 225. Odysseus is going to come home, and um, Athena is going to go to Sparta. And remember, he last we saw him last with Menelaus. Athena is going to tell him to return home. So he's going to leave, and he will meet with this prophet figure, and they'll go home. We'll we'll pick up with that when we meet again. But in this exchange, um, this is what she says to him on page 225. She says, leave, go back home. You must not let them divide and eat up all your substance and maybe your journey a vain one. So urge men allow us of the great war cry with all speed to give you a conveyance so you will find your stately mother is still there at home since now her father and her brothers are urgent with her to marry. There's all this pressure, everybody's putting pressure on Penelope to marry. He is out doing the rest of suitors and giving the gifts and has been piling up presents to win her. No property must go out of the house. So the assumption is that women will be easily lured if they're given all these gifts. For you know what the mind is like of the breast of a woman. She wants to build up the household of the man who marries her and of former children and of her beloved and wedded, wedded husband. She has no remembrance when she's dead, nor does she think of him. I'm only repeating that. We've seen that in the in the underworld. Lots of critics don't even see that. It's amazing to me how they miss it. But you can't you can't go through the account of all these women without realizing they recall all these things. What they recall most are their possessions and their wealth and their estates, their homes. This nesting thing in women. But the one thing they didn't hold on to was their husband. They don't remember them. Are they female versions of Nestor? 
I don't know, Doc. Um, so that's one of the things that Odysseus clearly, that he's been warned, be careful when he gets home. Agamemnon was betrayed, other men were. What, what else? Is there anything else that's important for him to learn from the dead? Um, this is the one place that's set aside from all the others that he has to go to. He has to talk with Theresius. He won't get home. I, I, there's nothing said. I mean, there's a, a number of times we learn that to, um, Odysseus is coming was prophecy. Remember, he was prophesied to Phaeacians. He was prophesied to Calypso, Circe. They knew that one day this strange man would come. They didn't see him. They didn't recognize him. We've talked about that. When you're outside of the mean, you're blind. You don't see things. Um, you're not open to the gods. Um, but this is the one adventure um, about which it's said he has to talk with Theresius in order to get home. So why is it essential? What's, what's essential for this man? What is it that's essential about this that he has to have in order to go home to be reunited with Penelope, um, to, to have a better marriage um, that he would have if he didn't have this knowledge. What is it about the dead that, that he has to learn? Christ kept saying over and over and over again, unless a, fly, unless a seed fall to the ground, unless you die, um, he himself had to go into the underworld. He had to harrow it after his death. Um, he was resurrected from the dead. He had to die. It's amazing when you think, I mean, in so many ways, what Homer's showing is anticipating Christ. That we learn from Christ that if we don't die, we don't go home. That's so abstract in the gospel. Homer flushes it out. Um, what is it that Odysseus learns here? He meets Elpenor, who didn't get buried. He meets Agamemnon. He meets Achilles. He meets all the wives of the, the queens of the dead. These great heroes, these men, these men heroes that he... Remember, everything about it, it didn't start, I should have started the class because I wanted to go. Remember, everything about this book has to do with marriage. Absolutely everything. Coming home does not mean coming home to a, a well, wealthy house, you know, a roof and four walls with all this wealth. We've seen over and over again, wealth generally doesn't help people, it makes them worse. Coming home means a certain relationship with his son and his wife, and presumably one he wouldn't have had 20 years earlier when he left for the war. So what's crucial about this is a marriage. What, uh-oh, did we lose you? Did we, um, oh, there you are. Um, um, so, and remember, we I talked about in the pagan world, we see that there's this net, there's a possible perfection, 
a natural perfection, not supernatural, that comes with Christ, this natural perfection that's possible in a human being. A human being can, can become really good. We believe in our world that he's depraved, that he's evil or bad or a creature of evolution. Um, here, we see that there's this possible goodness in a man and between a man and a woman. Christ is going to add a lot, but my question is here, why is the land of dead? Why, why is it so important that he goes to the land of the dead in order to get home? Last thoughts. We're out of time. Maybe I should stop here and just and let you guys trouble over this. I think it's a tough question, but go ahead, Carrie. Go ahead. So he needs to value life. He's been at war. He needs to value life. Good point. Can anybody, honestly, I, I'm so glad you said that, honestly. I'm just, can anybody value life if they take it for granted? If you learn, if you learn that you're going to die in six months, what are you going to do? I mean, you're going you're to be glad for everything you've got. Most people take life for granted. So I, I, I just think that's clearly one of the things. If you, don't, if you don't go to the land of the dead, will you ever love life the way you should? Or will you take it for granted? It's certainly one of them. Anything else? Marilyn, Tess, the rest of you, I'm going to leave you guys now. But um, <laughs> next week, next week, we're doing the homecoming and we'll finish the Odyssey. Okay, we'll finish. I'll just briefly go through the homecoming, but here's what I want to do. I'll cover the homecoming. I'll ask some questions about the homecoming. Why, why 100 suitors? That figure is too perfect. He and Tele Telemachus and their friends are going to kill 100 suitors. Why, why 100 suitors? And why is that a condition for being reunited with Penelope? The, the dealing with those suitors. He, they have to get out of the way. So um, why the 100 suitors... Where was the other question? Sorry, my mind is going. God. Oh, oh. And where do we meet every one of those adventures at home? That's going to be the big question. And let me try to let me try to flesh it out a bit. Where does does he meet the um, the Lestrigonese queen, bigger than a mountain? Does he meet the Cyclops? Does he encounter a, a Scylla Charybdis moment? Is he going to meet the sirens? You're following me, right? Homer would not have him go through that unless it was to prepare him to deal with that. He will not be the husband it's possible for a man to be without learning to deal with those things. Boy, I, we, I, I want to give this course for pre cana <laughs> I can't, I'm not kidding. I want to give this. This should be a requirement for pre-Cana, for men and women. Anyway, those are, those are the major questions, okay? How does Homer resolve this, this, this long adventure? What is Odysseus coming to? What is home? It's not for a while. Remember, economia, the Greek, does not mean money. Economina means rule, econo, rule, nomos, law. Econo home, 
law. It's the rule of the household. What's the order that's brought to bear there that's important for Penelope and Odysseus? Because remember, when the book started, Ithaca is in absolute chaos. The suitors are tearing the place apart. The relationships are broken. Everybody lives in terror and violence. What we have at the end is a peaceful, just marriage. And it's a good marriage. In fact, I'm going to give one moment away right now just to sort of tease you guys. After the battle, when everything's settled, and Odysseus and Penelope go to bed, I, I'm pretty sure they told their stories, that there's nothing Odysseus held back, no matter what um, Achilles said. When they go to bed that night, Athena stops time. They're lifted out of that epic action. They're lifted out of that epic action. Violence everywhere. They're lifted out of it. And for a moment, they know an immortal peace. It's almost looking towards a Christian marriage. It's what we're called to, to be one with each other. It's an extraordinary moment. So we'll look at the homecoming. Okay. If you guys have time and can reread it, enjoy it. You know, I was reading through parts of it today, and I was, I'm just astonished by Homer. If you read him closely, you know, Telemachus comes across this fugitive figure, a guy who's killed somebody, and he's fleeing. We get the whole backstory. It's like walking into a cafe, you know, down the block, and bumping into somebody, and getting a story of what's gone on for the last five years. It, it's, it's what happens every day in our lives, right? It's so ordinary that all the way through the story, we, we can't meet a person without a, getting a backstory or a relationship with other people. Or It's like living in real life, except the violence is, you know, it's, a, it's a constant in it. But it's just amazing to watch what Homer does. If you have the time, reread The Homecoming, because I think you'd enjoy it. But we'll finish the book next week. And remember to order Virgil, the, the Fitzgerald copy, and... When we finish the Odyssey, we'll do Virgil. Okay. You guys all stay safe. Um, it's good to see you again, truly. Good to see all of you. Look at that, the crucifix on Bill and um, Marilyn's wall behind. It's really interesting to sort of come into your home. Um, can you see the crucifix in there? Okay. Back of Bill and, yeah. That's nice. Yeah, bless your souls, the two of you. Bless your souls. Um, okay. You guys have a good week. Be safe, okay? Enjoy the Odyssey. We'll finish next week. Bye. 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 Bye.